You know, sometimes it's, it's helpful to hear an outside voice, right? Sometimes when you're, when you're living and operating in your own circle or your own you know, sphere of influence, you can lose a little bit of perspective. And so it's good to hear from an outside voice because we can miss things, can't we, right? So it's nice to have an outside perspective to give us uh, some input. Businesses and companies recognize this, they do. They go hire consultants and they will come and they will understand your business or your organization and then they will give you some feedback, right, about your organization. Or maybe if, a, if you're going through a difficult situation in your family, uh, people will go to a trusted friend or a pastor or a counselor saying, hey, we'd like to have some outside perspective on our situation right here. Well, that principle of hearing an outside voice has been recently applied to the church in the United States. Rod Dreher wrote a very popular book. It's called Live Not By Lies. Live Not By Lies. And it's a very fascinating book because in the book, he interviews Christians who lived under the totalitarian Soviet Union and what it was like to be a Christian in those days. And what they've been telling Dreyer for years and really prompted him to write this book was the following. Basically, what they experienced in the Soviet Union, they are seeing some of the same things here in the United States. The same things. Now, they're not saying it's equal, but some of the same things are happening. And you say, well, how so? Well, here in our nation, the church faces a secular, progressive culture that increasingly marginalizes it for its biblical views about sexuality, gender, and the sanctity of human life. And this opposition has growing support from the government, from the media, from corporations, from universities. And, you know, that's a pretty clean sweep, isn't it, when you think about our society as a whole. That is far-reaching. And if one opposes the values of our secular progressive culture, you can lose your job. You can be fined substantial amounts of money. You can be kicked out of of degree programs and so forth. You can face the rage of social media mobs. (laughs) And that is not pretty nowadays. So cancel culture is a reality as Many believers feel just kind of frankly intimidated to live out their faith in public. You know, it's okay if you just kind of go to church and go home, but if you try to live out your faith, then problems start arising. Now, Drea recognizes, he's the first to say, this isn't the kind of hard totalitarianism like people experience in the Soviet Union, so he calls it soft totalitarianism. But what he also points out that if trends continue, it will be more difficult to be a Christian in the United States than it's ever been before. Amen? Amen. And it's interesting that the survivors of the Soviet Union are urging Americans to wake up while there's still opportunity to speak out. So hopefully, we will be awake and prepared. And as a pastor, I just have to share personally, I feel that obligation that I want our church to be prepared, 
to be ready, to be strong, and to not shrink back in a hole so that whatever the future uh, brings in our path, and nobody knows, maybe it won't go this direction, we don't know the future, but whatever it is, the church is ready and the church is strong so that we will be a lighthouse in the midst of darkness. And of course, what is the best way to prepare? What's the best way to prepare? The best way is to hear from Scripture as it speaks to this subject. So let me invite you to 1 Peter chapter 4. We continue our series on this letter. Apostle Peter wrote this to a group of churches in Asia Minor. Now he's beginning to draw the letter to a close. Just two more messages we're going to have here in 1 Peter. Uh, Peter writes, and today brings up the issue of, of unjust suffering again. This has been a dominant theme in his letter, but today he's going to bring it up and add some fresh insights for us to glean this morning. Got two parts to our passage, preparation for suffering and the challenge of suffering. Now, in the context, Peter is very much talking about persecution. But as we're going to see as we go along in our passage today, there's a lot of truth to be gleaned just from suffer, about suffering in general. Maybe not just persecution, but suffering that we go through in various ways in life. So I, I pray that this will be a very helpful message for all of us. So in the first part, we read here the preparation for suffering. Let's read verses 12 and 13 together. It says in verse 12 to start, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So Peter tips us off that he's beginning a, another major new section here when he uses that word beloved. He did that back in chapter 2, verse 12. Okay, so he, he's, he loves his, these churches here. He loves his people, right? I, I understand that, but he also gives some strong words here, right? He's encouraging them. His love is matched by his desire to speak the truth. And what he does here is that he reminds them that unjust suffering in the Christian life should not come as a surprise. It should not come as a surprise. And you know, things are often a lot harder when we are caught off guard, right? Would you agree with that? When you're caught off guard and you don't see something coming, that's when it's a lot harder. So you don't want to be surprised. And Peter's trying to, to encourage us, don't be surprised when you experience unjust suffering. I want you to be prepared. Things are harder when we are not prepared. I was thinking about how it makes a huge example, example I would give. It makes a big difference when you're prepared for a storm, right? A major storm that, you know, you're going to lose power and so forth. I moved to the Northeast about 16 years ago, and I remember thinking, well, you know, I know it's going to be colder there, there'll be more snow, but I'm glad there won't be any crazy weather up in the Northeast. <laughs> they don't have those big storms, right? No, no things like that. <laughs> Hasn't quite worked out that way. There's been a, a numerous hurricanes, of all things, tornadoes our town four years ago. You remember the big uh, snowstorm in October and trees fell everywhere. Power was out for a long time. 
And so my family and, and myself at the forefront, you know, we weren't the smartest in how to adapt to this stuff, right? But we have learned that when they give these warnings, it's pretty wise to pay attention to them. You know what? It actually makes sense to have some food that is ready to eat, to have some food, maybe in some coolers that will last, you know, a week or so in advance, to have some water preserved, right? If you have well water and so forth. The experience may not be wonderful, but it's a whole lot better if you're prepared, right? I remember two years ago, we lost it for a week, you know? And by the end, it's a long time, but being prepared makes a huge difference. So likewise, Peter warns us that persecution will come, unjust suffering will come, so do not be surprised. Don't be surprised. Jesus told the disciples before his death in John 15, 18 to 20, he said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would, uh, would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So Jesus prepared the apostles. The apostles, like Peter, they've prepared the church. Don't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised that we experience pushback and persecution sometimes in our lives. And we shouldn't be surprised that we see it in our country. This is what we were told, right? Be prepared. But also notice that Peter says that God has a purpose with these trials, Notice that he says that God uses this suffering to what? What does he say there? Test us. To test us. Peter said a similar thing back in chapter 1, verses 6 to 7. He said, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I want you to hear what I'm about to say because this is very helpful as we live the Christian life. Trials do not indicate God's absence, but his presence. Did you get that? Trials do not indicate his absence, but his presence. Now, sometimes trials do feel like Hey, you're walking along the side of the pool, you trip, you fall in the deep end, you know what? You don't know how to swim. <laughs> That's what it feels like sometimes, right? God's not anywhere around. Satan sure feels like he, he's around. But church, that is not the reality. That is not the reality. Here's the reality. The more accurate image is that, yeah, trials are like falling into the deep end of the pool. But God is with you the whole time. He is with you the whole time. And in fact, he wants to teach you how to swim while you are in the deep end of the pool. And he gives you an instruction manual in the Bible that will help you. And his hands are right there underneath you. And he will be patient and waiting till you learn how to swim. That is how we should see it. 
God uses trials to grow our faith, not to destroy it. Other New Testament writers would affirm that. James James 1, 2 to 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So James says, look, God uses trials to produce steadfastness, and that steadfastness will lead to the maturation and the completion of your faith, the growth of your faith. But spiritual growth is always formed in the crucible of suffering. John Piper writes, I have never heard anyone say, the really deep lessons of life have come through times of ease and comfort. But I have heard strong saints, quote, every significant advance I've ever made in grasping the depths of God's love and growing deep with him has come through suffering. I know that it's hard to embrace, but if we do, we will grow in our faith. And maybe if we're going through the same trials over and over and over again, maybe it's because we are not learning what God wants us to learn from them. We are more determined to get out of the trial rather than to grow from the trial. Now, in verse 13, Peter says that instead of being surprised, we should rejoice if we share in Christ's sufferings which he's talking about our allegiance to Christ, right? Peter spoke from experience. I mentioned this before. He he went through this. He knew how to suffer for his faith in Christ. Back in Acts chapter 5, remember his experience with the Jewish religious leaders, and it says that they didn't want him to be preaching and so forth. It says they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They were beaten. You know, and they still counted it an honor to suffer for Christ. You say, why should we rejoice at our suffering? I want to make clear, it's not some type of, you know, strange delight in pain or something like that. Rather, what Peter was saying there is that if we live for him now and are willing to rejoice in the sufferings that we experience now, we will rejoice all the more when Christ returns in glory. Did you get that? We will develop a deeper hunger for the new creation and spending eternity with God. I'm thankful that God has been patiently doing that work in my life through the years. He has taught me some lessons through the years, you know, and I I love my life. I am thankful for my life. I'm thankful for the many blessings that God has put into my life, but he has also allowed seasons and hardships and trials, and those things have created in my heart a deep longing for the return of Christ, has given me what I would call a heavenly gaze. It doesn't mean that I've checked out of this world, that I'm idle. If you know me, you would hardly say I'm idle, and if you also know me, I don't think you would say I'm bitter. Right? I'm not a bitter person. I'm not angry at all this and that. But what it has instilled in me is to know that this world is irrevocably broken, isn't it? Deeply flawed. And it is not going to be fixed in this lifetime. And so therefore, we're to serve and do what we can to bring glory and honor to Christ 
But we know that our deepest longing and hope is when Jesus returns. And so if we're willing to suffer now for Christ and endure these things and to learn the things that God wants us to do, it's going to just build and nourish in you a longing for that return when Jesus says he will make all things new. Amen, church? Then in verses 14 to 16, Peter continues his discussion about suffering. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of God, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So Peter adds that if we suffer for Christ's sake, we're blessed. Those words should sound familiar, right? He's just echoing what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He said, why are we, why are we blessed, Right? Well, Peter says, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. I think he's surely talking about the Holy Spirit here in this context. Now, I need to clarify, when a Christian, when we become a Christian at conversion, we receive the Holy Spirit. So Peter's not talking about receiving the Holy Spirit at salvation. But what I do think he's talking about is that as we are willing to suffer for the name of Christ and go through unjust suffering, that presence of God just becomes real and tangible and sweet in our lives and becomes the most precious thing to us in all the world. If we are willing to do that, the presence of God ministers ministers to us in this unique and powerful way. And so church, I want you to see from our passage so far, Peter's given three ways that God uses unjust suffering to strengthen us. It grows our faith, right? He tests us to grow our faith. It deepens a hunger in our hearts for the return of Christ. And God resides with us in a special way. God knows what he is doing, doesn't he? Yes, he does. He knows what he is doing. Yes, there are things in this life. Think of the story of Job. Well, we're not going to know why this or or that thing happened fully, right? But God wants us to understand better our trials. Do you realize that? He doesn't want us to walk around in the Christian life saying, I have no idea why this is happening. I'm just in the faint, I'm in the deepest fog, and I have no clue at all. And I'm going to live my whole life that way, basically saying, I have no idea. God doesn't want us to live that way. James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Remember, the context of James 1.5 is about trials, isn't it? It's not just about a decision to make you go with A or B. He's talking about in the midst of trials, ask God for wisdom, and he will show you. He may not answer every single question, but he allows these things so that we will grow and he wants us to learn from them and how to respond to them. Yeah. 
Verses 15 to 16, Peter exhorted them to suffer for doing various wrong things, uh, to not suffer for various doing uh, wrong things. He's done this several times so far in the letter. I suspect that he's doing this. He keeps bringing this up because there were people in the church who were blaming their suffering on the things that they were doing wrong in their own lives, right? They, they, they were doing sinful things, and then they were uh, saying, well, you know, they're blaming it on God or saying, well, I'm being persecuted because of this stuff, right? Maybe a, a scenario was like this. Some guy goes into the church and says, man, I got fired today because of Christ. You know, they know I'm a Christian, and that's why they got rid of me. And I think Peter's saying, uh, actually, no, that's probably not the reason. It's because you're late all the time, you're lazy, and you're not doing your job, and you're meddling people's affairs. <laughs> Don't bring Jesus into this, okay? But I think that's kind of a nice little reminder. Sometimes we think of the early church as perfect. Were they perfect? No. Not at all. They are redeemed sinners just like you and I, and we can find hope and that they were growing. We can grow too if we keep seeking and following Christ. But let's not blame it on our own sin, right? Let's suffer for the name of Christ, not for our own sins. So the first part we've seen so far is the preparation for suffering. The second part is the reality of suffering. Let's reverse the 17 to 19 together. Excuse me, 17 to 18. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So Peter says, look, it's time for judgment to begin in the household of God. Literally says the house of God. Now, in the Old Testament, follow this, the house of God was the temple, right? That was where the Spirit of God dwelt. Peter has been, and the New Testament writers make the case that the temple in the New Testament is what? The church, right? We are the temple of God. And the Spirit of God dwells in us. Hallelujah for that, right? That the Spirit of God dwells in each believer. He dwells in our midst as we gather for worship. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? 2 Corinthians 6.16 says simply this, We are the temple of the living God. All right, so you ready for this one? <laughs> Peter says it's time for God's judgment to begin with the church. He adds that if it, if it begins with us, then what about those who disobey the gospel? That's referring to non-Christians. That's Peter's way. He said this three times so far in, the, in his letter. Disobeying the gospel. The gospel is not only an invitation to come and believe Jesus, but it's a summons, isn't it? It's a summons. You need to believe this. But what does he mean there when he says, you know, he says verse 18, he adds that quote from, based on Proverbs eleven thirty one about judgment beginning in the church. What's Peter saying there, right? Well, let me explain just so I think we're on the right track. Peter is not saying that it's questionable whether Christians are going to be saved on judgment day. That's not what he's saying. Look in verse 18. He says there, you will be saved. You get that? And Peter in the first chapter gave some of the, the strongest assurances that our salvation is secure. So is everybody clear about that? 
He's not saying you may or may not make it there. That is not what he's talking about. And in fact, the word scarcely is better translated as with difficulty so that it says if the righteous is saved with difficulty. In other words, what Peter is saying is that we will be saved on judgment day. Yes, that is guaranteed, but we will be saved with difficulty because God will judge the church in this life. He will judge the church in this life not to punish per se, but to refine, to test, and to grow us, just as we were talking about a few moments ago. So if the church is refined through temporal judgment, Peter's saying, what will be the outcome of non-Christians on final judgment? If the church goes through painful, purifying trials, what will be the outcome for those who do not know the Lord? Do you see what he's saying? And if I could, can I just speak candidly for a second? Let me ask you a question. Are you ready for judgment day? Are you ready for judgment day? Yes, judgment day will happen. And each of us, each of us is a sinner who needs grace, forgiveness from the Lord if we're going to stand on judgment day. If you think you're fine and you're sitting there thinking, well, you know, I don't really need God's forgiveness. I'm a pretty good person. Let's just look at a few of the Ten Commandments, kind of the quintessential standard of what God would expect for people. Just to, let's just look at the Third Commandment, for example. Tells us not to take God's name in vain either flippantly or as a cuss word? Do you do that? You ever done that? The fifth commandment says to honor your father and your mother. Have you talked back to your parents? Disrespected them? Made fun of them? Or I think this is applicable when they get older. Did you care for them? Try to support them? Sometimes we joke about these things, but it's not a joking matter to God. It matters a lot to him. What about the ninth commandment, lying? Somebody would say, you know, I haven't told a lie. I would say you're probably a liar. <laughs> All of us have said things that were untrue. And you know what? We can get away with it in this world, can't we, a lot of the times? But God knows everything we say. And he's the only one that matters. So, friend, that was just three out of ten. I think we get the point, don't we? Someone said, well, you know, uh, what about that commandment, the, the sixth commandment about murder, right? I haven't killed anybody, right? I haven't killed anybody. That's good. We're glad. We're glad. But do you know that Jesus comes along in the Sermon on the Mount, and he takes that commandment, and he actually deepens it. And he says that if you hate your brother in your heart, you're just as guilty. Now, obviously, there's a distinction between act and thought. But what Jesus is getting at is that same raw emotion of hatred is the same if you actually carried it out. 
He does the same thing with adultery. You may not have actually committed adultery, but if you lust after someone, you are guilty of that same emotion, that same desire. So from God's perspective, we see that each person is in need of his forgiveness. So I urge you not to dismiss this and convince yourself you're fine. And if God has hit home in your heart about this message and what I'm saying to you right now, I urge you to follow through because God tells us how we can avoid his wrath on judgment day. The Bible says we need to turn from our sin. The Bible calls this repentance. We need to realize the gravity of our sin the offense to God, and how we need to turn from it. And the Bible also says that all of our sins can be washed away if we trust that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh who died on the cross and rose again for your sins. Know that you must embrace him as your Lord and Savior. God has made a way of salvation. And if we repent and turn to him, when the day of judgment comes, God will not see you in your sin. What will he see? Christ and his righteousness. Hallelujah for that. But today is the day to turn and not wait for another day. Verse 19, we read the conclusion. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So Peter kind of gives like a, a little summary of what, everything he's been talking about so far, about, I would say, not just persecution, but just suffering, unjust suffering in, in, in general. You say, well, how do we respond Peter makes two really important points here. He says we need to know God fully. We need to know God fully. He just called God the creator. So God is the one who has made everything, right, church? And he's the one who is orchestrating all things. And this is very vital. Please make sure you catch this. What does Peter say here? That if you're in the midst of a trial, notice how Peter says that these trials are part of his will. They're part of his will. I've said before, if Peter's already pointed this out, God is not the direct cause of evil, but he uses these things in our lives to grow us. So if you're in the midst of a trial, I hope this will be helpful for all of us. We don't need to question whether God knows what is going on, right? We don't need to say, hey, God, do you know what's happening in my life? He knows. He knows. And we don't need to question whether or not he has the power to bring about a change or a difference. He is the creator. He has all power and all authority. You say, well, then maybe he doesn't care. And that's why we need to remember what it says here. What does it say? He is a faithful creator, right? He is a faithful creator. He is committed to you. He loves you. He wants your good. He, he will not turn his back on you. And he cares very much for you. And he's using this trial in your life to test you and to grow you. Don't give up on him. He is a faithful creator. Just as the sun will rise tomorrow, so his mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Know God fully. Don't form some weird view of God. Let the Bible guide you as to who God is 
So know God fully. Second, serve God fully. Do you notice what he says there? While doing good, it is important to keep serving God in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trial. Sometimes people take the mindset, well, I'll just wait till all this suffering ends, and then I'll come back to church, and then I'll start serving, and I'll start doing this, that, and the other. No, no, no. Serve God in the midst of these things. Now you are right for growth, so keep serving him. And you can minister to other people while you're going through these things because you know what it is like. We show we really trust him when we serve him in the hard times. So church, we must entrust ourselves to a faithful creator while doing good. And as we do, who do we, whose example do we follow? The example of Christ, Amen. who did the exact same thing. First <laughs> Peter 2.23, just to remind us, when Christ was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. <laughs> Will you join with me this morning and saying, Yes, I'm going to entrust myself to a faithful creator. Amen, church? Amen. May it be so. Lord, we thank you for your word here this morning. You have taught us much, Lord. We thank you that you shed light in our path as we go through trials, suffering in this world, we're not flailing around in the deep end of the pool with no hope, no rescue. Lord, we pray this morning that we would prepare our hearts for suffering, for unjust suffering, for persecution, that we would be a strong, healthy church, a lighthouse for you. Lord, we pray this morning that as we have talked about some of these things, some of these reasons you give to allow suffering, whether it's to test us to grow our faith, to create a hunger for the return of Christ, or that you would just reside with us in a special way. I pray for all of us, Lord, that these things would be fresh in our hearts and minds, that we'd be encouraged by these truths, and that we might reflect again about the various situations we might be experiencing even now and say, you know what, Lord, you are with me. You haven't given up. You have reasons for these things. And so, Lord, we also pray for wisdom. We pray for wisdom. Why are we going through these things? Help us to be moldable, teachable in your hand so that we handle these trials in a way that brings glory and honor to you. And as a watching world observes, they just scratch their head and say, wow, how is it that you go through these things and act this way? And Lord, we will be quick to say, by the grace of God, not ourselves. And Lord, as we spoke about being ready for judgment day, my prayer is that everyone hearing these words this morning would be ready for that day, that they would turn to you for salvation and faith in Jesus Christ, to be fully ready standing in the righteousness of Christ, not their own. 
Lord, we thank you for your word. Again, we pray your blessing on our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name we ask it. All God's people said, amen. 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 Amen.